1: Caroline, go into, Carolina, the, light. Go into the, Carolina, line. the light. Follow the light, Caroline, Caroline. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just go Don't
0: on. Just come on way. Just, on. just, just on, come on way.
3: Back on Conspiranormal and uh, back after a three week, little three and a half week break here. We got Bobby in the studio again tonight. Say hello to everybody, Bobby. Howdy, howdy. (laughs) Glad to be back. Man (laughs) of many words. That's right, Bobby. Glad to have you back, man. Really. And uh, on the line, uh, we're going to get right into it. We have a Mr. Olaf Phillips, and we're going to be talking about something pretty interesting today. And that is about the secret space age and Alternative 3, and uh, hopefully get into a little bit of uh, Nazi UFOs. Um, But uh, Olaf, uh, kind of come on and introduce yourself. Uh, You know, tell us uh, who you are, how you got interested in this kind of work, and and, uh, what it is basically that you do.
4: Sure. So my name is Olaf Phillips. I'm a conspiracy and UFO researcher. And uh once upon a time I saw a UFO when I was a kid. Uh I couldn't explain what it was. I uh I ran across the hall to my dad who was in the Air Force uh a few years before he had just gotten out and I said, Dad, what what the hell is that thing? And you know, he by the time he got into my room it was gone and that kind of started me on a trajectory to try to understand what uh what UFOs are. Um I started out like many thinking that they were aliens. Uh you know, over time I started to to change that style of thinking to think that they were experimental aircraft. Um and once you get to that point, you know, some of the various hypotheses that you mentioned are uh, very quickly come after that.
3: Well, we're here back. Uh wonderful world of Skype once again, having some uh some, some Skype issues. I think we got the uh nsa or the space nazis or somebody trailing in so uh just uh one of what i want to get started with olaf i want to start talking about um alternative three and that is a film that uh, i just recently saw like last month i believe and uh, it's pretty interesting um although it is like you know a mockumentary can you kind of explain about the film alternative three and also, there were some strange um, things that uh, that were that dealt with that uh, that particular video. Some like kind of strange uh, circumstances around its release and its distribution.
4: Sure. So, Alternative Three was a the final episode in a, a series of television shows about science, and it was um, shown on East Anglia TV in 1977. So, originally, it was supposed to be aired in June. Or, I'm sorry, it was supposed to be aired in April 1st, uh, 1977, as an April Fool's joke, to to end out the the series. And they ended up showing it in June, um, due to uh, a strike and some miscommunication. When it was shown, it was simulcast in England, um, Scandinavia, and Australia. And the phone just went Crazy. It just went completely wild, um, and uh, people thought it was real. And so they, they were panicking, calling in, and it actually led to uh, laws being passed so that you can't show that kind of programming on public television in Scandinavia, uh, England, and Australia. So at the time, the uh, head of NBC drama supposedly was in London, and somehow saw it, um, and he loved it. So what he did is he optioned it from East Anglia TV to show it um, on NBC. And he took it back and he showed the censors. They're called standards and practices. And they, uh, they denied it and said it was actually too dangerous to air on public television. Um, at this point, the only place where you can actually watch it on TV, uh, from my understanding, is Japan. And in Japan, they air it on TV once a year. Um, So some other strange things happened. After it was produced, uh, there was a fire that destroyed all the contracts and marketing material and the original master copies of it. So today, there's only one film copy that's known to exist. And that's controlled by uh, Christopher Miles, the guy who actually uh, filmed it originally.
3: Um what is it about? What is the what is the kind of like the gist of the
4: program? So the gist of the program is is pretty much that they're back in the late fifties. Uh, they determined that we were going to suffer an ecological collapse. Um, okay. That would eventually maybe lead to an ice age. So they came up with three options to stop it. Right, the first alternative one was to detonate a n- nuclear weapon at high altitude. To uh, vent the carbon dioxide into space. Um, alternative two was to build underground bunkers, and alternative three was to move to Mars by way of the Moon. Um, as a as a show, it's obviously fake, but if you look at it as a as a construct, then it, it actually turns out that a bunch of these things are true. There there was a guy from Scripps uh, Oceanographic Institute in 1959 who presented a paper. At the American Chemical Society, where he discussed the fact that the phytoplankton uh, that he was uh, he was surveying would no longer be able to handle the conversion of greenhouse gases to oxygen, um, you know they weren't going to be able to handle it within the year. That they would actually be able to to repurpose like ten or twenty percent the total CO two that was in the air. Um, so. You know, alternative one maps very nicely to a thing called Project Heart Argus, where they set off a nuclear weapon at high altitude, um, ostensibly to create a an um, artificial Van Allen radiation belt. It's called the Christophilos effect. Um, alternative two: underground bunkers. I mean, if you know anything about conspiracies, underground bunkers aren't hard to prove. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, alternative uh, three was to go to the Mars by way of the Moon. In the late 50s and 58, 57, 58, 59, the uh, U.S. Army fronted a, pr- a project called Project Horizon um, where they were going to build a large manned um, military base on the moon. Uh, the Air Force uh, had one called Lunax. Uh, the Soviets had one called Zvezda. So, you know, there was a lot of activity going around. So you know, you can find things that match the timeline, you can find things that match it structurally. So although it it may be a mockumentary, it appears to be a truthful one.
3: So, what basically it is, is that they're, you know, in the documentary itself, um, you know, there's like this idea that uh, there's a brain drain that's going on in, in Great Britain, and right. they're they're trying to find out at first with like where those people are going. And so kind of like the, although it's never really said kind of the, the the context or subtext is, is that the people that are leaving Britain are actually going into space and uh, helping out on the moon bases on Mars. And
4: some, some of them are are leaving to go to to Mars. You know, some, some obviously went to Germany or France or, you know, America and some of the people that, that were uh, contacted to go to Mars and decided not to, at least in the film, are, are killed.
3: So you feel that, in, in your book, that Alternative 3, that these people either they ab- advertently did it where they, where they knew something was going on, and so they fictionalized it somewhat, or they may have even just inadvertently stumbled on something that was actually
4: real. Well, what Leslie Watkins and and Christopher Miles have said in interviews is that that what well Christopher Miles said that what they did was fake, but they inadvertently stumbled apro- across something that appears to be true. And Leslie Watkins, who did the book, mm. says that you know he he wrote it as fiction, but it's surprisingly fact and the book was actually classified as nonfiction so i mean it the whole thing is very odd right but they yeah they they everybody involved says it's fake but they stumbled across something i mean it doesn't take rocket scientists to do it right you know if you've got if you if you're gonna if you're gonna make the leap and say there's some sort of ecological nightmare coming you know yeah. that they had just come out of the era of ploughshares where they were trying to detonate nuclear weapons to to make harbors and stuff i mean there's a beautiful deep water harbor in alaska that they they set off a nuclear bomb to make but it's like radioactive for the next 10,000 years
3: yeah so it's not very usable
4: no <laughs> no well maybe if you want to glow but you know the the thing is is that they had just come out of this and you're in the late '70s, and maybe one of them had come across the American Chemical Society meeting. You know, I mean, it's a, it's hard to say, but they all claim that it's it's fake, but it's it actually uncovered something astonishingly real.
3: So, what is the real alternative three, so to speak?
4: Well, I think I think that you can chart it, right? So. I, I think what you see is you've got the American Chemical Society and the and the work done by the oceanographer for, or, or the marine biologist at Scripps. That leads into Hartak Argus, which was a nuclear weapons test. That failed. So I think at that point, you know, they they retooled it because one thing they have to do, right, is that they have to be able to reorientate the project because if they don't, the it's a climactic disaster, you know. So I think when Argus failed to achieve what they wanted, they started a process of geoengineering. You know, you might call it chemtrails, but I think I think uh, they started geoengineering in the 60s. And it, nowadays, the uh, the amount of chemtrail activity required to offset, you know, what we're doing or what we're experiencing is so high that it's obvious. But, you know, there was, there was an interview on BET television with Prince, the recording artist. Okay. And he talked about when he was a kid, which I think would have been in the 70s, that he saw chemtrails over Minneapolis, where he's from. So, you know, I think that chemtrails have been here, what we call chemtrails, have been here since the 60s. But I think that was their attempt to control the temperature and, and do geoengineering and climate engineering while they figured out what else to do
3: i'm a little I'm a little doubtful on on chemtrails. It's one of the uh, parts of conspiracy theory that I've always kind of doubted. Uh, and really to tell you the truth, I mean this the whole thing about the secret space race and all that. that's why I always wanting to read your book and to get you on was to talk about some of these things because these are some of the things that i've I've always kind of struggled with as being a possibility. But one of the things that I found interesting on the subject of chemtrails that you talked about was, this study that was done right after nine eleven, when all the when all the planes were grounded,
4: right? Yeah, so in the in the hours after nine eleven, they grounded all the aircraft across the pretty much North America, right? And all these climate scientists, um, they they ran outside and they said, "Oh my God, there's nobody flying airplanes." You know, we gotta we gotta do go out and take some tes- make some tests and take some readings, because we're never going to get this chance again. I hope not. But, um, yeah, they found that the brightness um, the brightness on the Earth, to, on the surface of the Earth, increased. And I think it, the temperature increased by, like, 1.6 degrees. And the philosophy behind that is is that the chemtrails, what we call chemtrails, right, they have a number of things that they supposedly do, anywhere from, you know, carrying blood and all kinds of drugs and whatever you know the the reality that i've been able to determine is that you know they what they're spewing out i can't tell you right but the the theory is is that they're creating a a layer over the earth around the earth so you have to have the complicity of all the governments in the world to make this work right because if you don't then you're gonna have gaps and then then the temperature will continue to rise So the idea is that they dump this stuff at high altitude when the planes are flying at, you know, at thirty eight thousand, forty thousand feet, thirty five to forty thousand feet, they're ejecting this material, right? What the material does is it changes the reflectivity, the albedo of the earth. So when the sun when the sunlight comes in, it's actually reflected out into space away from the earth. And this is supposed to cool the surface of the earth, right? But what what it does is it actually produces something they call global dimming and this is real I mean the the scientists mainstream scientists have have seen this and that's what they detected after 9/11 and that tells you that's after 24 48 hours of no aircraft that the that te- the, the temperature increased by like over a degree and the the uh, the ambient light to the surface of the earth uh, increased by several percentage.
3: So are they putting what's in the chemtrails, are they putting that in like adding that to every I mean I didn't even know how to say this, like <laughs> every jet plane that's that flies got has this stuff added to it, or is it a special plane that's doing this kind of like a crop duster kind of thing?
4: My own opinion, and you know, I've I've had some interesting conversations with people about this. But my, own, my opinion is that in order to make it work, you'd have to put it into the jet fuel of pretty, almost every plane. Okay. I don't think they're... See, one of the things that's been very elusive about the chemtrails, right, is that you can never find a legit pilot who did it. And you can never find a legit operation who did it. Now, I, I've been on interviews and people have described seeing these aircraft spraying and they're like spraying out of the tail, And spraying out of these other mechanisms and they may be there. That may be. They may have some heavy spraying style aircraft to fill in the gaps. And but I think that whatever is going out there, originally I thought it was aluminum, but you know, I, I had a conversation with a guy who was telling me that if they put aluminum into the fuel, then it would cause the engines to overheat. So maybe it's something else. Whatever it is, I don't care. All I know is that I think they have to put it in the fuel of almost every aircraft because it okay. used to be that you could watch an airplane go by and there would be no contrail and then one day you'd yeah. watch an airplane go by and one would have a contrail and two wouldn't now almost every airplane you see has a contrail and that tells me that they're they're spreading the program
3: Bobby you look absolutely comp- uh, like perplexed over here
4: no I'm just Taking it
3: all
4: in right now. You know, nobody's ever produced an honest-to-God photo. You know, a lot of the photos show contrails being emitted from the engines. There There are a few photos that appear to show things coming out of nozzles. And like I said, those planes may exist. But I think in order for this to work, you have to spread it via the jet stream over the entire world. So you would have to have a massive fleet In order to achieve that. And I just don't think it's realistic to say, well, I have a squadron of specially retrofitted, you know, KC 135 tankers that are carrying chemtrail juice and I'm going to dump it out the back and it's all good. Because number one, you'd have to do it in Russia, you'd have to do it in Europe, Asia, Africa, Oceania, like, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Polynesia, Hawaii. You got to do it everywhere, man.
3: Yeah. Yeah, for it to, to for it to do what it's supposed to do, which would be to basically, it's the idea of
4: cooling, cooling down the Earth. Yeah, it's cooling the Earth by not letting sunlight yeah. in. It's it's like an artificial nuclear winter. Right. Oh, wow. That's pretty extreme, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's not a full blown nuclear winter, right? The the idea yeah. if, if there was a nuclear exchange, a proper nuclear winter, would shield us from the sun for something like like five years or 10 years. This, you know, it's very lightweight, but I think, you know, I think it, it may be the cause because they're they're going to use whatever they got to do to keep the temperature under control. So some of these things that we've seen arise in like Alzheimer's disease, which is caused by aluminum in your brain, you know, or other things that, that we see starting to rise may be a byproduct of it.
3: There's also this thing called Morgellons right. that, you know, people say is uh, whether it's a, it, you know, there's all that debate of whether it's like a real thing, but it's but there's a lot of people that say that it's because of the chemtrails. And...
4: Yeah, I mean, Morgellons is an odd, odd thing. You know, it's they're like tendrils. I mean, it's really weird. It's like the crystal and tendrils and stuff. I don't know. If, I don't think it's intentional if it's the chemtrails. Um, I don't think the chemtrails are intentionally designed to cause harm. Yeah. I think they just cause harm by the nature of what they are. Right. And I'll take some fire for that, but I don't. I don't think you could get any government to complicitly sign up to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm basically gonna bombard my entire population for the next fifty years with with stuff that's gonna kill them. I don't, I don't think they'll do that.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the opposite of the Alex Jones, you know, in-game mentality. Right. Or like saying that, you know, we're just trying to kill everybody off. And, you know, you do mention the Georgia Guidestones in the book, however. I found that pretty interesting. Yeah. I've been I've been over to the Georgia Guidestones, and actually, uh, you're probably seeing my picture there on Skype right now. That's actually my co-host so. looking through one of the holes of the Georgia Guidestones. So. I did
4: the same thing. You can't help it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it's a
4: weird place.
3: Oh, it, it really is. I mean, I'm not too far away. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. So, But uh, I want to talk more about, you know, kind of get into um, al- the Alternative 3. And you, you do a lot of work on, like, saying where that kind of started. That um, if there's a secret space program, that it probably starts with the Nazis. Right. And with Nazi Germany. And this is something that... I found just absolutely fascinating. Some of this stuff is based off of, like the idea of the Nazi Bell, right. and uh, whether or not that the uh, the Nazis went down to Antarctica after the war. And uh, you know, can you kind of go into some of that, like what uh, the kind of development of that kind of technology?
4: Sure. Well, a lot of the mythos around the Bell comes from a guy named Igor Wachowski. or Watowski, I'm sorry. He's the originator <clears throat> of the Bell story, and everybody who's who's talked about the Bell subsequently, the, he uses him as the origin point. So Nick Cook, all these guys went to Watowski originally, and the the story of the Bell comes from a guy named J, Jacob Sporenberg. And J, Jacob Sporenberg was a was an SS officer who was in charge of the police and SS kind of. Um, counterinsurgency in scandinavia eventually he was he was killed or he was um executed as part of the nuremberg trials but supposedly witowski's friend who's in the intelligence service in poland it's poland they uh they got a copy of spornberg's <coughs> spornberg's uh, interrogation when he was captured and And allow Watowski to read it the usual right no photos, you can take notes, but no photos whatever and and Spornberg wound this amazing story about this guy named Kamler who ran this top secret base called Derisi the Giant, you know in Czechoslovakia at the at the Skoda Munitions plant, and they built this thing called the Bell. They didn't really know that much about it, yada yada, yada, and it goes from there. Now, the reason that it's significant is that Sporenberg was an SS officer in charge of counter counterinsurgency and the police, right? So he may have had access to that information on an intelligence basis, right? <clears throat> but the, the more interesting part is that he fingers this guy, Hans Kamler. Now, one of the things that I've never really seen discussed in any of the books, there are lots of books where you can read about what the bell is, right? Basically, it's a... It it uses a a form of red, it's called red mercury. It's serum 525. They rotate it in a gyro at high speed, and it's supposed to create like an anti-gravity bubble, right, around this belt, and then the belt can lift up and and fly around. They tethered it to this thing called the hinge, which has been somewhat controversial. Now, what's more interesting than all that is this guy, Kamler. Kamler actually has a PhD in engineering. It's civil engineering, but it's engineering. Right out of college, he went to the Nazis. Because the Nazis what? were just getting started. Kamler went right through the door. He went in before, you know, before a lot of the really bad stuff happened. And he was very quickly picked up and put into the SS. He was one of the early SS guys. His job in the SS um, was around construction. That He used to work with the organization, taught, and they used to build things. Well one of the things that one of the things that happened is that he was an adjutant to an SS general and Himmler himself um requested that Kamler be the one to go in and burn the Warsaw ghetto. So one of the turning points in the war is when they burn the Warsaw ghetto and they start to to take all the the Jewish people out of the area and they send them to the to the death camps as part of the final solution. Right? Yeah. That's when things get really really bad. And, well, so Kamler burned the Warsaw Ghetto down. He personally did it. When he came back, they're like, boy, boy, Hans, you did a great job. So here, our, your next job is to build death camps. So he was responsible in the SS Office of Resettlement to build all the uh, concentration camps and to install the, the mass death tools that they used to kill all the Jewish people so he was actually responsible for that and they they uh he was basically the technical implementer of the final solution which is horrid
1: well yeah really
4: yeah so when when he had done that um they said boy you know you're you're a real good Nazi you know now why don't you work on Pen- penamunda where they were testing the v1 the v2 and and some other more ex- they had like a super tank like a Panzer X thing that they were building, it was like a Panzer tank that was like three stories tall, right? A bunch of weird stuff that they were building out there. Well, he built the the facilities, so he built um, Nordhausen and he built the the uh, underground um, con- underground uh, factory next to Nordhausen, and he he managed it, right? And so one of the things that that he did is that uh, by managing those so well that he was able to unseat Albert Speer, who is the architect of the third Reich. He unseated Albert Speer and he convinced um, Hermann Goering to replace Albert Speer with him. And then he eventually became responsible for all construction and, and uh, secret testing. So he became responsible for testing things like the V one and the V two and the comet, the Metro Schmidt 262, and a lot of the the wonder weapons that we see today. So he was, I mean, if you were going to have a guy to run uh, the Area 51 equivalent for the for the Third Reich, he would have been the man to do it.
3: So the the belief is is that this Bell um, invention was. Used as a means to to power, like, some kind of saucer-like craft?
4: Yeah, it's called a Hanaboo. Okay. There's a second one uh, that, supposedly, it was called the Vril. Well, there are a number yeah. of them, but the, the other famous one is called the Vril. And the Vril was made, it was designed by the Vril Society. And they they uh, claimed to have um, psychics that channeled the design of the Vril saucer off of, like, aliens. And it was powered by this Vril energy, this kind of life energy, or you might say it's like orgone energy. It's just like ether energy that floats around. Then there was Schomburger. Schomburger designed something called a Vortex Engine. So there are a few different ones, but the Bell is probably the best candidate for something that the that the Germans would have used to attempt to build a saucer.
3: With this technology, and I, and I guess the big question is, and I guess you probably get this a lot when you're talking about this, but the big question would be for me is with this technology that they had, why didn't they win? Or do you think that's too simplistic an, an answer or, or, or a question possibly? Well
4: no, I, I wouldn't say it's too simplistic, but you know I think you have I think it's actually more complex, right because you really have to, yeah. you have to come up with what is winning. Right, it's survival sure. winning.
5: Yeah,
4: you know, and and I would argue that that they could have survived it. I would argue they absolutely did survive it because Otto Scorzani built the rat lines and started funneling them into Argentina, and and he Scorzani built the secret police infrastructure for Juan Perón, so he could guarantee that nobody was going to come and get him. So I would say that's that's a form of winning because you've lived, right. Um. I think I think that if you want to assess winning as in they would have won World War II, um, I think the answer to that is simple. That answer is actually simple. No matter what they did, it was too late. They had a two-front war. They had a lunatic running the country. You know, I mean, they had just made the most catastrophic bad decisions that you could make. A two-front war... You know, starting a, a front against the Russians and trying to fight them in winter, Napoleon couldn't do it, and I don't care who you send up there, nobody's yeah. going to do it, right? But you have, a, you have a madman running your country, and he's not listening to the general saying, don't do this, Napoleon couldn't do it. He's like, no, we can do it because we're better. Well, not really, but, you know, they tried anyway. And they would do other things, you know, They there were a lot of people running the country that shouldn't have been, right? There were people running the country that had no, that didn't, first of all, their ideology, you know, I mean, where to start with that? But even beyond that, you know, Hitler was insane. So I don't, no matter what you did, no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't have won.
3: So do you think that in the, Late forties. Well, first of all, there's this idea that they moved to Antarctica, and I think what's the uh, Admiral Byrd right. was the uh, was saying that he was going on some kind of surveying mission. But a lot of there's a lot of people in conspiracy circles that think that he was
4: actually going down there to see what the Nazis were doing in Antarctica. Yeah, and they fought back, and he had a bunch of stuff destroyed. And it, basically, in one day, he he like got up in the morning and said, "We're leaving," and they left. I mean, it was it was that rapid. It was like the next day he was like, "I'm out of here."
3: Yeah. yeah. So this goes into kind of the idea of you know that's also part of your the title of your book, which is breakaway civilizations. Right. And this would be the perfect case of one because you have this uh, well, basically like as silly as it sounds, space Nazis. Right. And uh, in the fifties. You begin to get these reports of the blonde-haired, blue-eyed aliens. You still kind of get those reports of the Nordic aliens. Uh, you had this uh, strange guy that was uh, going around Washington saying that he was a space alien named Valiant Thor. Right. And uh, there's also some weird stuff with the uh, Barney and Betty Hill abduction right. That uh, that is very weird. You can kind of go into kind of
4: that stuff? Sure, so basically what happened is, is that in the 50s, during the contactee movement, there was a guy who, who showed up, and his name was Valiant Thor, and he was he was accompanied by Commander Don and Jill, and uh, they were kind of the, they were what they call Nordics, they were like six foot tall, blonde hair, blue eyed people, they say they came from Venus, um, they were, there was a guy named Frank Stranges, um, and he, you know they they had requested to to go talk to people at the Pentagon and apparently they did they actually went to the Pentagon and had some sort of conversations there and one of the interesting things I think you find with Valiant Thor in particular is this this idea of ethnocentrism right that we're a very ethno, ethnocentric society meaning that yeah. we humans in general think that where they're from is kind of the center of the universe. It's not I mean it's not bad, it's just it just is the way it is, right? If you think about where you live, you're from Nashville, right? You know, you identify yourself as saying, you know, I'm from Nashville. And when you travel, you think about the distance to and from a location from Nashville. Right? Yeah. You associate things relative to Nashville because that's where you're from. <clears throat> and there there might be names that you would name children that are kind of Kind of, you know, Tennessee based or Nashville based or kind of cultural, right? So if you step back for a moment and say, okay, well, I'm a Venusian, right? I'm from Venus. Um, <laughs> I just had a child. Number one, assuming that I speak English, which I think is a stretch, assuming yeah, that I speak slightly, <laughs> English, right? assuming I don't speak Venusian, um, I'm going to name my child Valiant Thor. Which means brave God of Thunder, because valiant is brave, and Thor is the god, Norse god of thunder. And you're and and as a Venusian, I want to invoke some Norse mythology, right? And then there's Don. I mean, at least they spelled it with two N's, but it's Don. How many Dons or Donalds do you know, right? Then there's Jill. Jill is one of the most common names ever. Now you could argue that they they had Venusian names and they changed their names so that they would be more pronounceable by earth people, right? But I don't think so. So they go to they go to the Pentagon. They apparently went to the Pentagon. So what's the conversation that you're going to have? Well, I'm a Venusian. I'm here to help you. Well, they didn't help them. They didn't do anything. Yeah. Right? I think it was more like I'm a I'm a space Nazi from Venus. You leave us alone, we'll leave you alone, right? But these Nordics, they they exhibit the kind of stereotype of what the, the Germans were after with the Lebensborn program, where they were genetically engineering their children. And they were they were passively genetically engineered. They weren't necessarily in there with pipettes trying to make every kid blonde, <clears throat> but what they were doing is selective breeding, right? which is a form of genetic engineering. So you've got that on on one hand, and then you've got the Betty and Barney Hill on the other. Now what's interesting about Betty and Barney Hill is that when they were abducted, right, one of the things that Barney Hill did that a lot of people don't know is that he had a 45, uh, like a Colt 1911 45. He had a 45 in the car and he actually opened fire on the UFO because he thought that they were coming to get him, right? Because it was was a dark time in American history that, you know, there were some very bad things going on and he was afraid and so he (laughs) fired on them. But apparently he ran out of ammo and they they got him on board, so him and Betty and are are on board the spaceship. And in the first hypnotic regression that he did, um, he talked about that the aliens that had abducted him. He assumed they were aliens. He said they looked like Nazis because he had been in the war. I guess he said they looked like Nazis. They wore peaked caps. They had black jumpsuits with silver piping. It's very reminiscent of an SS uniform. Like if you look at a. SS Panzer Panzer Brigade. When the when the the uh, Panzer uh, crews are standing, they're wearing like a black jumpsuit with silver piping, and then they've got like the Death's Head and the lightning bolts on the uniform. Well, he, they, he didn't see the lightning bolts on the Death's Head, but what he saw was the rest of the uniform and the peak cap, which is important. The other thing that's interesting is that he claimed in that first only in the first hypnotic regression, that there was a red-headed um, Irishman that led them through the UFO. Now, that's important because it's not widely known. But in World War II, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, was actually accepting weaponry from the Germans. And the IRA had actually sent people back to Berlin to be trained on using this equipment. Because obviously they were at war with the English, and they, they used the weapons to fight the English. So it's the enemy, and my enemy is my friend. Well, it also turns out that a number—not a huge number—but a number of people from Ireland, both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, actually went overseas and fought in the in the SS uh, Foreign Legion. Right, so there was like a small group of like the like Irish people in the SS fighting, and then they also sent sent a group of people that fought on the side of Franco and the fascists in the Spanish Civil War. So, you know, seeing an Irish, a redheaded Irishman on board a German UFO, or what you would perceive to be a space Nazi UFO, is not necessarily beyond the pale. You would also expect to see French, from the Vichy French, the 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 French fascists or the Italian fascists, you would, you know, there were a a group of people that you would expect to see on there because they were allies of the Germans in world war two, but he saw those people on board that ship. And the third thing that's interesting about the abduction is that when they showed him the star map, they actually showed him a star map and said, here, look at this star map.
3: This is the Zeta reticuline
4: thing. What they saw was a map and and they pointed and they said, we're from here. Right? Well, the, the thing is, is that the map was orientated from the Earth. Or from our solar system is probably more accurate. Now, right. if I'm from zeta reticuli, everything that I'm going to do is going to be orientated from zeta reticuli. So I may have a map that shows the path from zeta reticuli to Earth and Earth to zeta reticuli, but I'm not going to orientate it with the Earth in the center. Because I'm not Ooh. from the Earth.
3: Let me ask you, Olaf, um, you know, a a couple of shows ago we had uh, Nick Redford on.
4: Oh, I love Nick.
3: He actually, uh, he he mentioned you um, when we were talking about Alternative 3. And uh, we talked about Betty Barney Hill and we talked about some other things um, dealing with mind control. And I'm I'm beginning to wonder if the Betty and Barney Hill abduction and a few others were kind of like, mind control experiments that were being done on these people
4: well they could have been i mean there when you get into ufos in general right there there's a a long history of the cia and the air force and other people using ufos as a cover yeah. so yeah i mean it it could have been early attempts at mind control absolutely the the truth is is that you know we'll never know because you know they, they they did the hypnotic regression. We don't know, you know how well or not well that hypnotic regression is. I mean, it's a very famous case, but it doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean they did everything correctly, right? You know, it was very early. <laughs> you know, sorry, Mayday. <laughs>
3: oh my God. Uh, right away One of the things that we mentioned in that uh, was that the. Person that wrote the book, The Interrupted Journey, also had written another book about a French town that was um, that had been that had been eating like um, ergot or rye or something something that oh, right. was uh, highly hallucinatory, and then these people were having these hallucinatory villages because they were ingesting these, and Nick's kind of. Um, was his postulation in his latest book is that the possibility of that, that was actually probably some kind of experiment too. So the uh, supposedly this author, I can forget the author's name that wrote both of the books was, was with, you know, had been talking to a lot of these CIA guys and he was supposed to have been gotten and been given some of like the secrets of MK ultra. And it's just interesting that he later on, uh, writes the, this book about the Betty and Barney Hill case. Yeah, and when I read your book and this, the kind of the more weirder elements, and I mean weird in the sense that that's not what you see on the documentaries or on the like the what was the movie with James Earl Jones, you know, where it was these little guys, these little aliens. I mean, you're not hearing about Nazis and people in uniforms. No, they, and, they don't
4: talk. To uh, it. They completely exclude
3: it. And what was also interesting and fascinated me in your book as well was these weird insignias that are being seen on UFOs, and a lot of them uh, are, are have like are fascist fascist symbols.
4: Yeah, or they or they're English letters. Yeah, I mean, if I'm from space, why do I need to put a one? <laughs> Should it be like a dot or a triangle or something. I mean, it's, right. it makes no sense. The more the more you look at it, the less it makes sense, right? The more you look at like these elements, the less it makes sense. And and that's across the board. I mean, it's you know, it's it's everything. I mean, it's not it's not just one element of the the UFO phenomenon. I mean, it's all of it. You know, I'm not saying that UFOs aren't aliens. I think I think some of them might be. You know, I tend to follow the the Heineck Valley model of like it's well, maybe ten percent. Yeah, but yeah, I mean it's it's really yeah. You look at the iconography, like the Umo, the Umo iconography. I mean that that symbol is straight up fascist.
3: What is the Umo? That's I, the I've three heard lines that before, but... connected
4: by. It's like three three, three ones connected by hyphens.
5: Okay,
4: you know, I mean that's a straight-up fascist symbol. Or one of them had a, one of them had a had a lightning bolt on it. I mean, it's either the flash, you know, or it's the British Union of Fascists. I mean, you can take your choice. <laughs>
1: what about the guys in uh, it was the two military gentlemen that uh, found, basically saw a UFO or something crashed in England. I think it was back in the. Uh, 70s oh, 80s, I, think, yeah, I think
3: it's Rendlesham yeah Rendlesham Forest yeah.
4: okay yeah well yeah, they never it. they never saw aliens right and what they right. detected and saw the was ship. radiation which supposedly a bell gives off right so,
1: and then the manuscript like on the on the front of the uh, the ship and whatnot that they saw
4: yeah I mean and then you've got Lazar Lazar saw kind of squiggly lines on the the inside display of the ship that he he saw you know, th- there are exceptions to the rule, right? I'm not saying that it's a hard and fast rule that you can apply 100% of the time. Right. You know, there, there are exceptions. But I think that the vast majority of the UFOs we see are exotic aircraft.
3: Huh. Right. Aircraft that's that's being tested or possibly being used by someone... Well, tested or Specialized.
4: I mean, we. You know, uh. I would argue to you that aircraft like the Aurora are in use. They are not being tested. The aurora is in use. So,
3: are there bases on the moon? Or on Mars? I mean, is, is stuff like that, in your opinion, going on? And, and if and if so, how long has it been going
4: on? I think there absolutely are. And I think the way that you find it is in the garbage that you you look for garbage. And in the book I put some photos to garbage.
3: Yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember yeah. seeing those in the book.
4: And and in and I found a I found a, a building on Mars that looks like it it's some an expensive house in Malibu. But I assure you that's on Mars. So I think we're definitely there as far as, you know, when um I would say probably starting in the 60s.
3: So, if there's Nazis in space, is there this idea that there's possibly a war that's going on with that kind of breakaway civilization?
4: I would argue yes, from the point of view that, that we put all this stuff up, this SDI equipment. I mean, if you look at STS-48, the video, you can see it firing off, right? know, yeah,
3: ost- I've seen that video. Right,
4: and ostensibly that was designed so that we can shoot down Russian or Soviet actually, Soviet missiles. I think the reality is, is they're actually turned the other direction. I think they actually served to defend us from incursion by alien or non terrestrial, you know, objects, whether those are space Nazis or, or aliens or you know, whatever. But I think they're actually turned around. And if you if you go down to the Gary McKinnon thing with you know, Solar Warden. If there's no war up there. You see the thing about this is right that is is conspiracy nuts and researchers and stuff, we don't look for the end game. And when we do, we're kind of we're kind of uh, the path of least resistance group, right? If you're gonna do something, there's a reason. And it's not always for power and money. You know? If you're gonna build a fleet of spaceships and call it solar warden and put it out into space, you're not doing that for mind control. Right, you're you're doing that to to blow something up.
3: Obviously- well, let's go into that with Solar Warden, like Gary McKinnon, and what he found.
4: Huh?
3: Oh, let's go with like like what he like Gary McKinnon, and and, and what you know, what Solar Warden is, and what he what he found well, there.
4: What Gary McKinnon found um, in hacking into those uh, those computers is he found transfer lists between non-terrestrial officers going between ships. And he found in he found um inventory manifests of like equipment on board the ships. He also found a, a photo supposedly the NASA hadn't airbrushed yet that showed a, a large cigar UFO hanging over the moon, I think. But a lot of it is that he found that kind of leftover material from running a running a space fleet, you know, inventories uh, you know, movements of equipment and people between ships and that kind of mundane thing. You would, you know, what everybody wants is a picture of a, of a battle cruiser flying the American flag sitting off the edge of Saturn, right? But you're not going to yeah. get that. You're going to get transfer orders, all that mundane stuff that nobody really cares about. I mean, think about the stuff you throw away. Right, if you get letters in the mail, you know some insurance company sends you a letter and says, you know, I can save you ten percent in five minutes. Right? You're gonna, you know, what? I'm not, in, I'm not interested in this. Yeah. So, so basically, <clears throat> what McKinnon found was, was the leftover junk. And you know, we as a, a society or, you know, we tend to have a lot of leftover junk. And again, that's what you can find on the moon, It's what you can find on Mars, um, and that's what you can find on servers, because that's the kind of stuff that people don't clean up.
3: Right. And it's very interesting because it's like kind of a, such a mundane thing, but yet, there it is.
4: But that's the key, right, is that because of the mundaneness of it, right. You know, that's the thing that they don't worry about. Because, you know, think about when, when you go to work, right, you know, you're working, and you've got this kind of stuff where it's like top secret, well, you know you're going to be real careful about that. But then you know somebody sends you an email. It's like hi hi Bob. You know there's a lot of social engineering that you can do just based on an email that says hi Bob. Yeah. So
3: I I remember when that Gary McKinnon thing happened too, and I remember him seeing a YouTube video with him, and he said just that w- the way he was able to get into some of those computers was just like the the passwords were so sloppy. Like a lot of some of the passwords were just simply password. Oh yeah. Huh. And he was able to download. It. But the thing was, you know, they said, "Oh, he was looking for information on UFOs." But you never, you never really heard anything about that part. No. What you heard about was usually like, you know, that he committed this crime of hacking and right. You know, you never found out exactly what what exactly was it that he found.
4: Yeah. You know, and you can all and he just hit Defense Department computers. They they don't tell you which ones. And, you know, you, you think about other other hackers that have done far more damage, you know, and they're they're out now functioning as uh, cons- computer consultants. And then there's Gary McKinnon, you know, a guy with Asperger's who they basically wanted to want to extradite to the United States so that they can put him in Guantanamo for the rest of his life. I mean, that was the plan is that they wanted to put him, you know, in prison forever. And because they could classify him as an enemy combatant, because what he did was an act of terrorism, they could put him in Guantanamo. Guantanamo and they full on right. I think wanted to put the poor man in Guantanamo so but they'll never tell you what he found they'll never talk about what he did you know it's very very weird and you know you can also see elements of it in like the disinformation program around serpo serpo you know this idea that we sent these people over to a to an alien planet for you know a couple of years and they lived over there and they did stuff and whatever you know they're Is Serpo real? Probably not. It doesn't sound real. It doesn't pass a sniff test. But in any good disinformation program, there's a thing they call the the golden thread. It's this thread of truth. And, you know, the thread of truth may have been, you know, these guys went on a spaceship and went out into space and floated around for a while. Maybe they went to a planet called Serpo. Was it an exchange program and all this other stuff? Probably not. You know. Hmm.
3: Yeah, I was about to ask you about the Project Serpo thing. Yeah. Another thing I want to ask you, too, is uh, this is something that uh, was interesting in an interview I heard with you. And something I I'd never heard about before then was this whole Black Knight satellite, <laughs> which I know that's something you don't mention in the book. But I, I found that just, like, fascinating. And there's a lot of debate on that thing, whether it's space junk or, or you know, just or what it is
4: yeah the black Knight uh, satellite is a real odd one. <clears throat> there may actually be two. Um, one is one is implicated in something called the Long delay echoes. and basically what it is is that there are points in the solar system where they are um, at gravitational equilibrium, meaning that if I put a, a bearing in one of these points and I don't touch it, I just leave it alone that the gravity of the sun and the gravity of the earth and the moon will not pull it in any particular direction because at that place there's its balance. And so supposedly, I think it's at Lagrange 2, L2, there's, there's an object where if you send it messages, right, um, it will send them back to you with increasing delay. So if I send it a message, like on a ham radio setup, if I beam it in that direction, then it'll send it back to me within a minute, right? And then I send I send another message to it, and then it'll beam it back to me in five minutes, or it'll do three minutes, then five minutes, and seven minutes, and nine minutes. You know these. <clears throat> I think it uses prime numbers and other stuff, okay, to construct the delays. In the seventies, the there was a guy named Duncan Lunan that, that hypothesized that it, it the the pattern of how it delayed messages. Actually, equaled out to a message itself, and he was able to decode it. And it it basically, you know, said that we're from um, Epsilon Bootes. We left this this probe in your you know your vicinity. We monitor your radio and and uh, television traffic. You know, if you'd like to get a hold of us, here, here's how you do it. It's kind of like what we look like. Yada yada. In the '90s, he revised. I think. Late 80s and 90s, he revised it and said so he got some of it wrong. But essentially, it's the right thing. Right? So that's one thing. And that thing just sits out there. And supposedly, it's something called a brace wall probe. It's this, you know, kind of big, like, fusion engine that, that sucks in hydrogen out the front and blows fire out the back. And, it, you know, it's all automated. In fact, the people that built it may be dead. Right? Uh, huh. The second one is a thing called a black knight. And it's this odd looking. Uh, object that floats around um, the low, low earth orbit and actually moves it you know it basically if you put something up there it'll come and knocking right and it when they launched Sputnik when they launched Sputnik they found something tracking it which is impossible because Sputnik was the first satellite ever launched well there yeah,
3: was there's supposed to be anything up
4: there right? yeah. so there's something following it and they can see it on radar and the Soviets are freaking out thinking that we launched something and it's following Sputnik and we, we launched Explorer, and I think Sputnik had already gone through reentry. so we launched Explorer 1, and then there's that thing again, following it around, you know, so every time something goes up there, there's a tendency for this Black Knight object to approach it and to try to understand what it is, I guess. Now, I, I wrote a I wrote a, a chapter in a book called Ark of the Covenant uh, and Other uh, Ancient Exotic Weaponry that was published um, by Tim Beckley in a... Inner, inner light publications. Uh, and my in my chapter of it, you know, it's about the Ark of the Covenant and other weird stuff. And in my chapter, I actually hypothesized that, that there was a massive war in ancient India and that they might have used kinetic energy weapons in order to fight. And I had hypothesized at that time that the Black Knight, barring any better explanation, the Black Knight may be a spent munitions platform from that fight that never went through reentry, that's that qua- has a quasi-intelligence, at least it has a program responsive, if you're going to come near me, I'm going to come and get you. The problem is that it, you know that happened you know, 14,000 years ago, so it's long spent all of its munitions. So it may come and look at you, but it can't fire anything at you. So that's one of the ideas that I had about what the Black Knight is.
3: So is the possibility that this is an ancient space platform and it could have been put there by... An ancient civilization?
4: Yes. Because I don't think, because it predates, it predates our, our program so significantly that it, I don't think it could possibly be us. Right? Because especially if you lump it into the long delay echo thing, I hypothesize that the long delay echoes may actually be you sending it messages and it not understanding it, so it's sending it back to you. Right? Because if you think about it, logically, right, that, you know, I'm going to control a probe. Well, I have a base station on the Earth, and I'm going to send it commands over a satellite, right? So I'm going to type in my command move left, and I'm going to send it up there. Well, when I send it up there, there's a construction of that command. There's a protocol. So way that command is formatted. So when it gets to the thing, then it, the thing dissects it and parses it out and says, okay, I'm being ordered to move left, so I'm going to move left, right? Well, if you start sending messages that it doesn't understand, it's like, what is this? I'm going to send it back to you and say, hey, what's that? You know, that could also account for the long delay echo thing. But, <clears throat> you know, because the long delay echoes were originally detected in the early 20s, 1920s, you know, it, it definitely predates us. So I don't, you know, our, our quote unquote space program. So I don't I don't think that it, I, I think we have to look for, that's part of that 10% where we need to look for something more exotic to explain it.
3: What would be the purpose of and kind of getting back to the whole alternative three hypothesis? Sure. What would be the purpose of having what most would call the actual space program, but with possibility of a cover space program?
4: What would be the purpose of it? Is to cover and disinform. Okay. See, if you're following alternative three, so this is again where I go back to the fact that we always fail on the end game. Right, it's kind of like yeah. you know we can see we can see the bumps in your arm, but we can't figure out that it's cancer, right? Or we can figure out it's cancer, but we don't know what kind, right? If gotcha. uh, if you're gonna fake if you're gonna have an alternative space program that runs in parallel, and is doing something as massive as Solar Warden, you know, or Alternative Three for that matter, you you definitely don't want to talk about it in public. But uh, but at the same time, the public is saying, "Look, we've got to go into space. Why aren't we at the moon?" Blah, blah, blah. Let's go to Titan. You know, we should be doing this stuff. So they had to do with something. And so they launched NASA, and they went to the moon. And I think a lot of the things, potentially, that the moon hoax guys point out, say there's a sea on that rock, or when you drive, it's like Looney Tunes. I see the the same mountain again and again, right? Those things may be to cover up objects, because the worst thing in the world is I'm I'm landing the limb, I get out, I'm on my space dune buggy, I'm out there, you know, I, I got the pedal to the metal, right? And, oh, look, there's a radio mast. Well, where did that come from, right, you know? Or there's some dude out on one of the, the rocks going, wow, those guys don't know how to drive. Well, hang on. <laughs> where did that dude come from? We didn't bring him. How did he get here? You know, so I think you see a lot of airbrushing to take care of that. Or there could be a swastika. Or there could be a swastika. <laughs>
3: One other interesting thing I found in your book, and this kind of goes back to some things we talked about on this show, too, um, is this idea of batch consignment. Right. um, And the idea that uh, people may be being abducted or disappearing in the third world and possibly here even in this country.
4: Right. Well, in the alternative three mythos, right, batch consignments are basically slaves. So they... They will kidnap people and take them up to the moon or Mars to function as as low value uh, servants, you know. And okay. because they leave all the the heavy lifting to the technicians that they cared about, you know, you, you basically need thralls that can walk around and load the vending machines, clean the you know clean the floor that kind of stuff. So they, yeah, the the theory was that they abduct them. You just you, and and I well you, I pointed to the third world right because. You know, there are so many genocidal wars in so many parts of the third world that, you know, I could walk into into parts of, of Africa or Asia, you know, <clears> or <throat> Southeast Asia. I could walk in and literally lift out an entire town and you would never know. They'd just be gone. Hmm. You know, and, and the explanation a lot of times is, well, they got, they, they got relocated. Okay, they're gone. Well, then they must have been killed because right, it's yeah. some insane genocidal war, or you know, some warlord you know sold them to somebody else. Some some kind of you know mass human tragedy occurred, or they got you know somebody landed and said, walk in here, and the next thing you know, walk out there, and you're on the moon, right? But so what you makes you to
3: wonder if there's a if there's a purpose behind sparking off some of these wars.
4: Oh, absolutely. I think the the purpose behind sparking some of the wars is for control. It's very much a an Orwellian model of, you know, East Asia is always at war with Oceania, which is always at war with, you know, with Europe, which is Eurasia, which is always at war with, you know, Oceania, which is always at war with East Asia right it's this kind of perpetual yeah. warfare plus you know they've got to do something to cover up the billions of dollars that they need to funnel into this thing so they need you know you need a war machine to to justify you know experimentation and the other things that they need to use to cover up the program but there's one important thing i would note that you know nasa is not all that it, it seems i mean we you know there are jokes that never a straight answer you know things like that but yeah. there's a there's actually and I wrote about it in paranoia of all the places um it's in the the last issue that was put out winter of, of twenty fourteen that it was a special JFK issue and in there I wrote a, a story about UFOs over Camelot and effectively what, what I had come across was there's a thing called the burn memo. And in the burn memo, there's a there's an instruction by Kennedy himself that the director of uh, NASA should talk to the director of CIA to explain to him what the defensive capabilities of NASA are. Well, the reality is that NASA has no defensive capabilities because it has no weapons, because it's a civilian organization. Well, it's a civilian organization run by the military. So, you know, definitely go to paranoiamagazine.com and pick up that last winter issue, because the, the skies over Camelot the article I wrote, I think, would be very enlightening.
3: they put up, you know, spy satellites and military satellites up there all the time.
4: NASA did, sure. They, that was their delivery, you know, mechanism of choice. And you know, I think ninety-five percent of the mission commanders and the pilots, you know, and, and the mission specialists were military. It was like military, military, military. okay. Well, is it a civilian organization or military organization? Are you leading the military or why? If you're part of a civilian organization, why are you given a rank like commander? High commander this, high commander that. Okay, are you in the military or are you in a civilian organization? It makes no sense.
3: Yeah, yeah no, it doesn't. That's no, a very good point. Um, Bobby, was there anything that you wanted to ask?
1: <clears throat> no, not really. I mean, it's <laughs> um, kind of soaking it all in.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Did you need to wear a helmet? Did I blow your mind? No, uh-huh, it's not the
1: first time.
4: Uh, no, it's, uh... I blew your mind, man.
1: It's uh, some interesting things. Well, what's your take on uh, UFO... Well, I mean, I guess you just kind of hit on that with the Black Knight and whatnot. But, uh, like, some, like, <laughs> ancient cultures and whatnot that have, that have either, you know, drawn diagrams and hieroglyphics or whatnot about
4: sightings and... Things in the sky and I guess what you were talking about in India and whatnot. You know, uh, I as a as a person, you know, I, I like to give us credit where credit is due. And I think I think some of that stuff we built it. Right. When you talk uh, ancient Indian vimanas, you know, and, and like some of the stuff that you see in Central America where they, they make these little uh, Delta Fighter looking things out of out of uh, gold. Right. But there's also uh, there's a story from ancient Japan where in Japan, they I believe it was a golden egg, but they saw an egg descend out of the sky and land on a beach. And the the thing had three prongs that shot out of the bottom and the door opened up and and this wondrous bean came out and, and all the all the fishermen were confused. And this is very similar to the Lonnie Zamora sighting, you know, in, in New Mexico, where he was, right? Yeah, you know, he was a right, highway yeah. patrolman. He saw the egg land, you know, like a robot got out. Well, they saw the same thing in ancient Japan. I would believe it was during the Edo period. So, you know, there are times when it is an alien chip, I think, but I think that comprises ten or fifteen percent. I think the vast majority of them are, you know, human in origin, and I don't think we give ourselves enough credit. I mean, DARPA, conservatively, DARPA is 50 to 60 years ahead of us in the civilian world. You know, not conservatively, probably more realistically, they're over 100 years ahead of us. You know, back in the the early 50s, they were building airplanes with nuclear reactors. You know, in fact, Stanton Friedman worked on that project. Did it work out? No, but they were still, they built an airplane with a nuclear reactor.
3: What is your take on Roswell? What do you think was that that crashed there?
4: That's a hard one. You know, everybody has an opinion, right?
3: Million dollar question.
4: That's a hard one.
3: I think it was a weather balloon. (laughs) Me me too. I just
1: it had to have been. (laughs) Some people
4: think that it was German, you know, because there's some debris that supposedly was German in origin. The the thing that I have to go back to is that you know you've got Marcel, you know, Jesse Marcel. He's a combat veteran. You know, he fought in World War II. You know, he knows what this stuff looks like. And he could not identify what he saw. Yeah. And then you've got his son. His son, you know, granted he was very young, but he was he was astonishingly consistent in what he said that it looked like. in the I-beam and all this other stuff. He went on. He became, I think, a, a one-star general in the Air Force. You know, he was in the Air Force. These, these guys know what this stuff should look like. So the fact that Marcel could not identify, you know, that, that to me makes it very interesting. Because I would think that Marcel could identify a downed aircraft. Or if they pulled human bodies out of it, I think Marcel could tell that they were human bodies. Yeah. Right. So you know, I'm I'm gonna err because I'm a nuts and bolts person, right? I'm gonna err on the side of Jesse Marcel and Jesse Marcel Jr. and say, you know what? Those guys had enough experience, Marcel Jesse Marcel Jr. in later life to know what an aircraft and what body should look like. You know? Yeah. And 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 he's not the the other thing you got to remember is the 509th. The the people now to recover that that saucer, whatever it was. That was the only nuclear-equipped bomb squadron in the world. They were the, those. Those were the guys that
3: dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. And,
4: yep. and to be in that squadron was such a tremendous honor. I mean, it was the creme de la creme. You know, you're not talking about like SAC today, or Strategic Air Command they've got X number of bomb wings. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of people that are in Strategic Air Command. Back then, the 509th Bomb Wing—that was it. All the nuclear bombs in the world were stored at Roswell. Hmm. So hmm. the idea that these guys are going out there, and you've got the, you've got you know, uh, uh, the base intelligence officer, and all these other uh, you know officers, and enlisted list of guys going out there picking this stuff up, and these guys these guys are numbnuts that can't identify an aircraft or they can't identify a weather balloon. I find that highly suspect. Yeah,
3: it's a, it's an extremely good point. Right. Very good point. I
4: don't think we give ourselves or some of these people enough credit. Oh, I, no, I agree. I think that we're, we're in such a, a rush to say that aliens did it. You know, we're in such a rush to say that, you know, th- these guys did it or those guys did it. And, you know, we're we're always discounting the fact that maybe we did it or maybe, you know, Jesse Marcel knew what he was talking about. You know? Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, we're all we're always looking for the exotic answer, and I think Occam Occam's Razor applies. Occam's Razor says that you know the most, the simplest, most upfront answer is probably the right one. What's
1: your take on present day uh, Area Fifty <clears throat> One?
4: You know, um, I think they test a lot of really interesting aircraft at Area Fifty One. <sighs> Um, I've been a long-time supporter of Bob Lazar. I've always believed that Bob was telling the truth, and he accurately represented what he saw and what he understood to be true. Whether that was ultimately true or not, I couldn't tell you, but I think that Bob was being very honest about it. So I think based on that, that any of that kind of research was done at S-4, which is away from Area 51. But <clears throat> I think Area 51 is an entity is, a, is an aircraft test facility. And you know they test some very odd stuff out there, right? You know, but I think that Edwards is actually where the where the uh, the uh, stuff to the moon and, and Mars comes from. Mm. I think they fly it at Edwards.
3: Interesting. Uh, just out of curiosity, have you ever heard of the uh, this guy named uh, Andrew Basiago? Yeah. The guy who says that he was a time traveler and he went to Mars? Yes,
4: Project Pegasus.
3: With, with Obama.
4: Project Pegasus. Yeah.
3: Sure. Do you have any like? Do you think that that's what's real, or do you think that that's this is maybe some disinformation? Or
4: I don't think it's disinformation. Uh, yeah. It's an amazing story. Well, that's true. And the, the level <laughs> of intricacy that that Bastiago can can give you is is very high. He'll uh, yeah. give you names and dates and places and people, everything that you really want. Right, I don't know if it's true or not. It's a hell of a story.
3: Yeah, Bobby's looking at me funny. Just like it's basically he's this guy says that he was a was part of this thing called Project Pegasus, and he was a time traveler. And then later he went on to Mars with like uh, through some portal or something, sure. and was there. With, well, you forgot with, the Obama was one of the guys that was there, and he
4: said, "Oh, you're going to be the president." And he he just chuckled and. You know, yeah. they had a thing called a chronovisor, which was like a, it was like a window, and they could like move it around and change the dates and like see the past. Well, I'm very familiar with it. With
3: their Facebook friends,
4: and, there, and there's like
3: a, there's like <laughs> there's like there's like a, a picture that it says that it's him, that, he, that like he's the little boy at yeah, like he, the Gettysburg Address. Yeah, and, and he
4: lost his hat.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I know. And he he can he can point it out that you know he's carrying some like orders for the secretary of the Navy or something like that. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, interesting.
4: it's hmm. you know, it's an amazing story. Um, you know, when I set out to write my book, um, I wanted to provide as many details as I could. Yeah. Because I don't want you to trust me. I want you to go look. Right. I'm, right. I'm trying to connect dots. You know, Richard Satter is going to do a better job of telling you about underground bunkers you know, Joseph Farrell's doesn't do a better job of telling you about, you know, the bell and, and some of the crazy stuff that's gone on with that. There's always somebody better who's fixated on one specific thing. But nobody ever connected the dots. I wanted to connect the dots and I wanted to tell you a story and say, look, here's how it all fits together. Don't believe me. I put as much fact as I could in there that you can search on. Go find it, right? Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I, I like Andrew. Uh, he's a nice guy, and he has an amazing story that that is very entertaining. Um, and I, I don't know; I can't tell you whether it's true or not, right? But when you when you make an extraordinary claim, you have to back it up with evidence. Yeah, extraordinary evidence, sure. right? And there, there's a single photo, and there's a lot of dates and times and places but there's no but nobody's ever been able to find anything about project pegasus. Yeah. When did this come out? <clears throat> oh, a few years ago. Yeah. 5 years ago. One of the things though that that is very interesting is that he he has gone on record saying that he's going to be elected president. And I don't oh, really? Yeah, and I don't I don't remember when it is, but he 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 says that he will be elected president. And I think that's That'll be a good time to to know whether it's true or not. It's about John <clears> Teeter, <throat> right? That you know Teeter yeah. claimed all these things. We're going to be in a civil war and all this other stuff, and you know none of it's happened. So, you know, if you claim stuff, you better be ready f- to back it up with it actually happening. But I, like I said, I like him. And he's got an amazing story, and you know, I think I wish I wish for him that. You know, somebody could find something with a FOIA request or something that, that would be fairly definitive. Because you look at Lazar, right? They they can spend all day bashing Bob Lazar around and saying he didn't do this and he didn't do that. You know, he may or may not have, but I'll tell you a couple things that are undeniable. That man put a rocket engine in a CRX. That, mm. that guy put a rocket engine in a Lincoln Continental. Really? Yeah. Wow. He took an F. He took an, a jet engine out of an F four Phantom, and he built a he built a jet car. I've seen it with my own eyes. He built a rocket backpack that you can wear while you're riding a mountain bike. And mm-hmm. most importantly, he has a W two from Naval Intelligence during the time that he said he worked at S four. And he yeah possibility that he was there right. He has a W two, and remember the thing that you can always do right is that we live in a bureaucratic society with a bureaucratic system, right? You know, if you work somewhere, I don't care how top secret it is, you got a W-2. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in the military, I don't care where you were, on Pluto or whatever, you have a DD-214.
3: There's always some paperwork. Somewhere. There's always
4: paperwork. You can't leave the military without a dd two. <coughs> so if you want to tell me you're in the military, show me your DD-214. That 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 piece of paper tells me everything you did in the military. It may or may not be true, but it shows me at least you're in the military, which is a starting point. You know, there's always some sort of paperwork. And and that's what McKinnon found. He found the paperwork. He found he found the garbage. And that's what it's all about. Right? Exactly. It's interesting. It's it's food for thought. I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you have to approach it with a skeptical mind. That being said, you know, I I can't wait until until somebody finds that document and shows that what he's saying is true, because he he's very consistent, and <clears throat> it's amazing. So I, you know, I want it to be true, but I'm not willing to go one way or another until I see more evidence for it or against it. Right now, it's a story. You know, yeah. it, it, I hope he writes a book because it would make a great story.
3: Yeah, it definitely is a great story. It is. Well, Olaf, I want to know, you know, we're kind of running out of time, but I want to know, you know, um, where people can get your book and uh, what, um, what you're, you know, what's next
4: for you and what you're working on. Sure. So um, you can get the book at Amazon uh, or you can go to anomalies.net, A-N-O-M-A-L-I-E-S.net. That's kind of like my... Central website. I also write for Paranoia Magazine, uh, paranoiamagazine.com. Um, I have the book. I have a, uh, a chapter I wrote in the um, Ark of the Covenant and Other Mysterious uh, Weaponry from Ancient Weaponry um, put out uh, by uh, Tim Beckley. You can find out more at conspiracyjournal.com. And uh, I have another uh, book coming out, or another chapter in a book coming out that's being put together by Tim Swartz. Um, I don't know the full title yet, but it's basically about um, ancient mysteries in North America. Uh, I found that I, I wrote a bit about a, a wall uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, um, you know, I got that. And then I'm starting to work on another book, which is uh, odd, odd Things in the San Francisco Bay Area.
3: That's where you're out of?
4: Yeah. Weird, weird huh. stuff. <laughs>
3: We uh we interviewed uh, Adam Go Wrightley in the last show. Oh, right. Talked a little bit about the uh, Emperor Norton in San
4: Francisco. Emperor, there, so. right. Well, we've, got, <laughs> we've got hidden tunnels, mysterious tunnels. We've got a haunted Toys R Us, we've got an <laughs> NSA listening post. We've got part of the Dew Line. Uh, we there was a very famous uh, attempted UFO abduction that that Jay Allen Heineck personally. Uh, Investigated here. We've got mysterious uh, giants, weird walls, gateways to hell. We got it all.
3: (laughs) Sounds like fun. Sounds a little bit like Tennessee. (laughs) Well, we want to thank you for coming on tonight, Olaf. We're just going to sound the line for us. We're just going to close out this section, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. Bye. All right, we're back on Conspiranormal. Uh, it's me and Bobby here. No Luke tonight as it's a Wednesday and he's over there busily making guitar parts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Bobby, you uh, looked uh, kind of like you soaking it all in, looked perplexed sometimes, looked interested sometimes. That no, was interesting. It was
1: just a lot of different points. Yeah. Um, going a lot of different directions there, but, I mean, interesting. You interesting. Know? I thought that... Uh, <clears throat> the whole space Nazi thing was a little, little far fetched, but you know, yeah, it's I mean. it's
3: it's interesting to me. I mean, you know, we had uh, what was it, uh, Gerard Williams on the show, remember, mm-hmm. a few months ago, and he talked about uh, you know Hitler going to Argentina and right. living down there, and uh, he you know kind of categorically said he didn't go to Antarctica, and you know, but. Uh, you know, Olaf kind of thinks that, that he probably, he probably, they probably did go to Antarctica. Um, you know, it's interesting how much of it, you know, some of it could be disinformation, some of it couldn't be. Um, or some of it just maybe just like a modern mythos almost. But you, you wanted to ask me about, you asked me about this Andrew Baciago guy that we, you know, kind of just got finished talking about. No, by, by, I by, just
1: about the I, Mars thing. i had never heard that. I mean, how is that even?
3: Yeah. Well, he says that he was uh, he was recruited at a school, um, like he was studying with a bunch of other young students, like a college or something. How old is? And this he guy? said that this guy's probably I know, probably in his fifties. Yeah. And he said that he was uh, recruited into like this time travel. Um, Project called Project Pegasus, and supposedly one of the per- people that was recruited with him was, was President Obama, back in at that time period. And hmm. he said that a lot of those people uh, either end up being presidents or Hillary something, Clinton, you know, yeah, you know, she big, was another right, one, yeah. you, know, you know, all, all the presidents <sighs> go back to George Washington or something. And then he claimed that he was that he was sent back in the in the time. And one of the things that he claimed was that he was sent. To to the Gettysburg Address to right. deliver a uh, note or something to the Secretary of the Navy. And he he brings out this picture that I've seen, and I know you've probably seen, mm-hmm. being kind of a student of the Civil War, of just like the aftermath of the Gettysburg Address, and there's all these people standing around, mm-hmm. and you see this one little kid in like a cap or something. And he points to that kid and says, you see, that's me, you know, when I was... Has anybody tried to research that and possibly try to figure out who that kid was? I'm not sure. Somebody may know. But he's just some random person in the crowd. And he says that that's him. And he, he says that he's carrying like this tube that looks like it's the note that he's supposed to give to the Secretary of the Navy. And, and then he came out and said that one of the... Also part of the project was is that they went to Mars. That they took like this portal. They got into this like portal and they made a jump into Mars. And, uh, you know, I have my own theory about guys like uh, Baciago. Is that I think some of these guys that come out with these claims is, well, either they're A, they're A, lying, B, they're crazy, Mm -hmm. or C, they may be actually still crazy, but they might have been these, like, they may have been actually, like, mind control experiments. Right, yeah. Like that we they could have about... been They could have been told that that's what they're doing, <sighs> but at the same time, it's all an hallucination, and they're all just being monitored. You know, we right. were talking about that while we were... We had taken, like, a five-minute break in the middle of the interview, and we talked about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction and possibility of that being, like, some mind control stuff, and we talked about it a little bit with Olaf. But uh, some of these other guys, you know, you had a... Uh, what was it, the Philadelphia Experiment and the whole like Montauk stuff and there was a guy named uh, Al like and Al like claimed that he was sent from the Philadelphia Experiment which is like the ship that supposedly they were supposed to make it um, invisible to radar. Right. And they actually ended up making it actually invisible. And the ship comes back and all the guys are like fused into the fused into the hole and, you know, guys are like one one part of the guys in the hole and the other part's, off, you know, on the deck and, you know, weird stuff like that. And he says that he jumps off the ship and he ends up in Montauk, New York in the uh, 1980s. Which, incidentally, is the plot of the movie from the 80s, the Philadelphia right. Experiment, if right. you've ever seen the movie. But uh, he comes with all this weird stuff that then that he was age-regressed to become Al B. Like, because at first he was another guy and, and you have all this just this weirdness about the Montauk experiment. And I have to wonder if these guys' brains, if somebody just did just did it just take these guys' brains and just fry them. To where they well, actually so they fry the them stuff was yeah, going on. I mean
1: manipulate them. You know? Yeah. I mean there's been known like hypnotisms and things of that nature as well, you know, besides actually using drugs, you know, yep, to You to do get that too. The,
3: you know, the man chill in candidate. Uh, you know, fluoride, you know
1: fluoride, fluoride everywhere. Fluoride in the water. It's <laughs> <going> <laughs> get you.
2: fluoride.
1: That's, that's what Luke was saying the other day. He oh, was, was he talking about he fluoride? He was giving the fluoride speech to Harden and I and Oh boy. We were both just kinda like nodding
3: your head. All right,
1: Luke. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know that's his
3: that's his, that's his big thing is uh this is a big thing is like nutrition and chemicals and stuff and all that. Yeah, but
1: he eats beans out of a can every uh, day. You no, know? <laughs> people eat stuff out of the trash. I don't know what you're talking about.
3: <laughs> oh. oh, we love you, Luke. Too bad Luke's not here. Now. Yeah, but uh, thanks, Bobby, for being here tonight. And yeah, anytime. Appreciate it. And uh, next uh, couple weeks, or about really a week and a half. Um, I'm going to have on uh, Stephen LeChance, and uh, he has a new book out called Blessed Are the Wicked. I just started reading it the other day. He had another book out that came out called The Uninvited and uh, it's basically about a story about him uh, surviving a haunting. Really? And uh, really like dark, violent haunting and then kind of like the aftermath. Right down math. my alley. And then it, uh, yeah, I think you'll really like this one, Bobby. That's one we haven't done in a while and it's like the kind of like violent haunting shows which is so the kind of the stuff I love too. So right. I think it'll be, I think it'll be real interesting. And uh, going to try to get the uh, Tennessee Ray Chasers back on. They've got their show. Uh, that I heard, yeah, I Ghost saw Asylum a, that came on. Saw off. a
1: commercial for it the other day on the old uh, Destination yep. America.
3: And uh, one of our uh, friends of <coughs> the show, Mister Joe, he has uh, been on the show quite a few times. At least, uh, at least I think about maybe three times now. And uh, sometimes you might have heard him with some ads that we did for something. He was He's always got something he's doing. But uh, he's actually helping them with their experiments on the show. So I'm going to try to get him on to talk, talk about it. Try to get him in the studio. And we'll try to just have a nice little jamboree. jam. Yeah. So just uh, go ahead, Bobby. Just take us out for the night.
1: Well... Uh, Hope you enjoyed everything this evening. I'd like to give a shout-out to Oprah Winfrey, City <laughs> Hall, and, of course, don't forget about... Barack Obama on Mars. Denzel Washington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, <and> Barack Obama <laughs> on, uh, Mars. Uh, on Mars. Mars, <laughs> Hanging out with... Oh, that's a weird fella. We're so. going to
3: call it a night, guys. Just uh, join us next time. About a week, another week, and two weeks on uh, Conspiracy Normal.
2: And then I nodded two, three more One man asked me for a dollar I asked him what it's for He said, I have seen them I said, okay, it's yours And it's featured on the MTV The local high school that's out And the town becomes anarchy Parties are crass Skin marks are measured The stories in the paper You may read it at your leisure Get up! Eat
5: it! from the basement.
2: Get up! Get from the president! And to the tune of a billion dollars I supply to the D.O.E. Some tasty little nuggets of alien technology And as one might expect, I've been harassed for years The men in black have been bending my ear As a matter of fact they were just as a day But I had them to a secret passageway Once I lived there for a thousand days Get out,
5: Egypt Let's get from the prison planet Get
2: out, Let's get from the prison planet I have plans for the future get the futuristic clans Move out west and buy some desert lands or maybe up north, just past Alaska You know nothing of this if they ask you Red rover, red rover, Bob Lazar's coming over So I clear the airstrip and light up that stove by Joe I think it's started, oh yeah Let's get from the prison planet